0: Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. This week, I have a very special episode after a long hiatus where I discuss one of the most beloved poems of all time, Rudyard Kipling's If.
1: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives grow strong and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance.
0: It's been five months since my last Poetry for Men episode where I read and analyzed the famous to be or not to be soliloquy from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. If you haven't listened to it, I recommend you go back and do that. With all humility, I say it's one of the greatest things I've ever created. But in doing so, I kind of painted myself into a corner. How do I follow Shakespeare? How do I follow Hamlet? How do I follow something I'm so proud of? I know the answer is you just do. But me being me, I wanted to find the right way. Then last week I was in one of my many online chat rooms with my brothers, and I shared the video of me from November last year, reading Rudyard Kipling's If. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And then I realized, wait a second, as part of that recording, I have a reading and analysis that I never published. I have an episode already in the can, and it's been sitting on my desktop screen the whole time. Life is funny sometimes, though, because Rudyard Kipling's poem, though technically out of sequence coming from the Renaissance, might be the only way to follow Shakespeare. Though the poem isn't quite of the same literary quality, it has almost as much, if not more, personal meaning to men than Hamlet's timeless words. Because while Hamlet is about one man and his personal struggles, IF is about all men, as we aspire to be. And as we appear to be heading into an uncertain season, a so called dark winter, Perhaps almost a year later, Kipling's words are better read today than they would have been at any other time. You'll notice several differences in the presentation. I was about a month into my podcast journey, so my confidence has grown and my analysis has become much more sophisticated. But I've listened to the presentation and my interpretation stands. And in sharing it today, it's my hope that you'll see new life in the poem and carry it forward with you as the days shorten, the nights lengthen, and we walk forward into spring and hopefully a collective rebirth for us all, including as a society and as men. As always, thank you so much for listening and for accompanying me on this journey through art, aesthetics, and meaning through poetry. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and this is Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. I'm here in my home state of Arizona, in an area called the Muggyon Rim, northeast of Phoenix, To record a very special episode of this series, I'll be reading and interpreting what might be the most well known and beloved poem in the world, If by Rudyard Kipling. If is a fascinating poem because I'd imagine that for the poetry connoisseurs who are watching and listening to this, it elicits an eye roll. And for those who are less well versed in poetry, it might generate an opposite reaction, maybe a fist pump. For myself, I was hesitant to read and interpret it for both of those reasons. I prefer hidden gems that satisfy the chin stroker in me and inspire the novice that I am as well. But at the same time, I wanted to take this rare opportunity in this beautiful setting to read and interpret something that I think we might all get something out of, including me. And I can't help but feel that hundreds of millions of people might be onto something. So I was surprised at what I found when I began digging into this poem. For such a simple and straightforward piece, I found a lot going on beneath the surface and I'm very happy to say that my experience reading and interpreting poems with you has helped me derive the insight to see it. But we'll get to that. First, as I usually do, I'd like to introduce you to the renowned English poet and author, Rudyard Kipling. Kipling was born in 1865 in Bombay, India, a city now known as Mumbai. I had the pleasure of visiting Mumbai during a six-month trip through India in 2019, and I found it to be one of the most thrilling, sophisticated, and beautiful cities in the country. In fact, while there, I joked, my favorite European city is Mumbai. Rudyard's father, John Lockwood, was an author and museum curator, and his mother Alice was a writer, poet, singer, and devoted mother. They met in England and quartered at Rudyard Lake in Staffordshire, a location they loved so much they named their first child after it. After marrying, they moved to India and would later consider themselves Anglo-Indians, which at the time meant English people living in India who held a deep affinity for both countries. Rudyard would later write of his own Mumbai days, Mother of cities to me, for I was born in her gate, between the palms and the sea, where the world end steamers wait. Rudyard attended primary school in England, and I was actually surprised to learn that, despite what you might expect, he wasn't able to earn a scholarship to Oxford. And because his parents lacked money to pay his way, he returned to India. And as I read through the fascinating events of his life there, describing when and how he discovered his talent for journalism and short story writing, I see the names of cities like Allahabad, Shimla, and Calcutta, all places that I've been fortunate to visit. This return changed Kipling, as he wrote, There were yet three or four days' rail to Lahore, Pakistan, where my people lived. After these, my English years fell away, nor ever, I think, came back in full strength. This was not to be the end of Kipling's travels. He would go on to visit Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, and even explore the United States. During his trip through the U.S., he met Mark Twain by chance in New York State. Soon after, he had the guts to visit Mark Twain's home unannounced. He later wrote that as he rang the doorbell, quote, It occurred for me for the first time that Mark Twain might possibly have engagements other than the entertainment of escaped lunatics from India be they ever so full of admiration. You can read more on Rudyard Kipling's Wikipedia page, which I recommend. Like Longfellow, he lived a fascinating life, which is reflected in his literary achievements. Of course, everyone knows Kipling's most famous titles The Jungle Book, Captains Courageous, The Man Who Would Be King, and Gunga Din. In 1907, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature and was nominated for British Poet Laureateships and a knighthood, all of which he declined. And like his countryman Longfellow, he is also honored in the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey, where his ashes are interred. The author Henry James said of him, quote, Kipling strikes me personally as the most complete man of genius, as distinct from fine intelligence, that I have ever known. And this perhaps is reflected in one of Kipling's last recorded quotes, when a magazine mistakenly announced his death after a sudden illness, quote, I've just read that I am dead don't forget to delete me from your list of subscribers. Changing political perspectives on the British Empire have affected the way Kipling has been perceived since his actual death in 1936. As I've avoided getting political in previous episodes, I'll continue to do so here. This is not the place to litigate the man and what others proclaim his legacy to be, be they George Orwell, W.H. Oden, or modern commentators. This is a place for art and beauty. And as such, I found a quote that I think sums up what I've learned of Kipling in my research for this poem. None other than T.S. Eliot had this to say of Kipling, quote, an immense gift for using words, an amazing curiosity and power of observation with his mind and with all his senses, the mask of the entertainer, and beyond that, a queer gift of second sight, of transmitting messages from elsewhere, a gift so disconcerting when we are made aware of it, that thenceforth we are never sure when it is not present. All this makes Kipling a writer impossible wholly to understand and quite impossible to belittle. Naturally, if you've read any of his works before, you'll see how true Eliot's statement is about Kipling. And this, his most famous poem, makes it even more clear as we're about to see. So it is my pleasure and humble honor to read the classic If by Rudyard Kipling. and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you've gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute, With sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. One of the reasons I hesitated to choose this poem is that technically there's not a whole lot in it to interpret. Kipling writes in plain language about situations and scenarios that we can recognize, even if they aren't familiar to us from our everyday experience. He doesn't make obscure literary references, sculpt dense metaphors, craft especially vivid or evocative imagery, or play artfully with the texture of language. But does poetry have to do that? No. No, it doesn't. And as I silenced the critic in me and accepted this poem on its face, for what it is, its own unique and sturdy beauty surfaced to me. First, I need to highlight the meter of the poem. It's in iambic pentameter. So if you'll recall in Longfellow's Psalm of Life, he wrote in trochaic tetrameter. Now, a trochae is a pair of syllables with a stressed syllable followed by an unstressed syllable. And tetrameter means that there are four pairs of those. So by contrast, iambic pentameter is based on iams, which is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. And pentameter means five of those. So trochae versus iamb, tetrameter versus pentameter. And beyond jargon, this is how it all plays out. So first, uh, Longfellow in Trochaic Tetrameter. Tell me not in mournful numbers life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. And now Kipling in iambic Pentameter. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. What do you notice about the difference between those two? To me, Kipling's poem feels much more like natural speech. And yes, part of that is in the word choice and the phrasing. Longfellow and Kipling were British contemporaries and Longfellow definitely wrote in a more epic, European-influenced style. But at the same time, even though their subject matter is similar, Kipling's poem feels more accessible and direct. In fact, the only thing that really makes it a poem, and not prose, is its adherence to the metrical pattern. It could almost be prose, so why didn't he just write it like that? We'll get back to that question. And you can see that it's not perfect meter either, even in the very first line, if you can keep your head when all about you. That's 11 syllables. You can count them. From the jump, he's not following the rules. And then again, in the third line, if you can trust yourself and all men doubt you, 11 syllables again. What's going on here? He's mimicking natural speech. And when I consider the plain language that Kipling uses and the lack of metaphor or references, essentially the hallmarks of poetry as we're led to understand it, the word that came to mind for if is workmanlike. This poem is doing work. Surely a celebrated writer such as Kipling could have chosen a more elaborate or even flowery language to communicate the same ideas, but that wouldn't have been the point. Ultimately, his poem is meant to clap a firm, fatherly hand on our shoulder, look us in the eye, and communicate a message of encouragement, inspiration, clarity, and ultimately, action. And that's what this poem is about. This is a poem of action. It's phrased as one long conditional sentence If this, then that. If you eat your peas, then you can have dessert. But what's key in that conditional sentence is the verbs. If you eat, you can have. And the same is true for Kipling's poem. We have to look at the verbs. To illustrate what I mean, I'm going to read most of them to you. Keep. Trust. Make. Wait. Deal. Give way. Look. Dream. Think. Treat bear, watch, stoop, risk, lose, start, force, hold on, walk, talk, fill. These are the conditions that must be met in the way that he frames his long conditional sentence. Notice something about all these verbs. Almost all of them are doing words. If you do all these things, then you'll be a man, and we'll get to what that might mean in a moment. But what Kipling is saying here is, if you do these things, you are a man. In other words, these are the things a man does. Or, put even more simply, a man does, a man acts. Notice Kipling doesn't say, even if you just sit quietly in the corner twiddling your thumbs, you're a man. He also doesn't say, manhood is bestowed by simply being. No, he lays out more than a dozen conditions for decisive action. That, if met, will make the reader a man. And now we have to address what that means, to be a man as Kipling frames it. Notice first how he capitalizes the M in man. Obviously, that's intentional, and I'll let you decide for yourself what the difference in meaning might have been if he had left it uncapitalized. But I think there's a bigger clue. Consider the if then conditions he lays out. Being generous in the phrasing, I counted about 20 of them. Some of them are fairly easy. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, etc. But some of them are quite hard. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. That sounds pretty tough. Or if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Try to imagine that. Try to imagine saying something beautiful and true and watching it be warped in front of you to cause harm. Or even if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. Have you ever known anyone that can do those things? All 20 of them? Honestly, do you know such a person? I don't. But I can imagine him, and I aspire to be him. And in that is the answer of why Kipling capitalized the M in man. To be a capital M man is and always will be aspirational. It's a goal we are always seeking and can probably never achieve. What Kipling is laying out in his poem is a sort of north star for excellence to guide us in how we conduct our lives, which are meant to be lives of action. Our manhood in the capital M sense is defined by our choices in the face of adverse circumstances, from the mundane to the exceptional. We may never know what it's like to hear the truth we've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or to risk all our winnings on a turn of pitch and toss. But perhaps we do know what it's like being hated without giving way to hating. Maybe we do know what it's like being lied about and yet not to deal in lies. We know the strength it takes to overcome the lesser circumstances of our lives, And it is that same strength we must draw upon to triumph over the exceptional, even the once-in-a-lifetime circumstances. In either case, that process looks like this. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will which says to them, hold on. There is something supremely human and noble in this, and Rudyard Kipling's If serves as a reminder of that best of human impulses, which is to continue to do the right thing, even in the face of overwhelming odds. And in that is a clue to this poem's timeless power, a reminder we all need to hear from time to time to hold on. I believe this also explains why Kipling chose to write this as a poem and not prose, though he was equally skilled at both. By adhering loosely to iambic pentameter and its natural cadence, he transformed simple but potent advice from speech into a song and song is always more powerful than speech. Right now, I'm sure that you can think of the lyrics of dozens of your favorite songs, whether or not they rhyme. I can remember every word of Pearl Jam's Alive, my favorite song of all time. But I struggle to think of the words from a favorite speech. I know individual lines like, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself, and I have a dream, and not much else. Because spoken words are a tool, but song is a vehicle that carries us beyond who we are and into the best and highest versions of ourselves, just as this poem is meant to do and has done for millions and perhaps billions of people all over the world for 125 years. And in that time, with its accessible language and rhythm, the poem has talked with crowds and kept its virtue. It's walked with kings and yet not lost its common touch. As a work of art, its friends and foes have yet to truly heard it, though they've tried. And as you listen again, a second time, I invite you to count yourself with it, but not too much. Thank you for joining me on this very special episode of Poetry for Men on the on Rim in Northern Arizona, my home. Once again, this is If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies; or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master; if you can think and not make thoughts your aim; if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same; if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son.